Hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the Lord of the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory, Selah. This is the word of the Lord. Well, the longer story to Sacred City in Providence, Rhode Island, is that as that church plant was looking for a name, they did a kind of a Google search, you know, trying to figure out, you know, what should we name our city? They thought of Sacred City Church. They wondered how many other Sacred City churches are there, you know, those churches named, named that. And what they discovered is that there's a Sacred City Church in Davenport, Iowa, and a Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois, and that's it. And so they said, hey, well, then we're going to go with Sacred City Church, and what a great place to go, Providence. I mean, that's where you want to be. You want to be, you know, where God's providence is at, and so that's what God is doing. Providentially uh, brought them into connections, uh, wow, um, to get them all the way out to um, go to Rhode Island. So uh, Kevin and Megan are part of our MC, our missional community. He was a, my, our missional leader, one of our missional leaders, and I uh, just really appreciate their lives and appreciate what God has been doing in their lives and through their lives uh, there. So neat what God's doing. Well, my name is Rob Spexter. I'm the pastor of discipleship here, and we are working through a summer series called the Summer of Psalms. Uh, one of the challenges uh, with this series is which psalms of the 150 psalms ought we to do over the summer? Psalms 1 and 2 are obvious uh, in that uh, they, have the, they have the introductory content. The psalms are unique in not only that they are dedicated to Hebrew poetry and is a songbook for us, but uh, is also unique in that uh, there was an editor, it has an editor, so sometime uh, after the return of the exiles, Ezra, or maybe an Ezra-like editor, chose 150 psalms, probably out of the hundreds of hundreds of psalms to choose from, and then put them in a particular order to tell a story. So Psalms 1 and 2 are introduction to that story. And what we find in the first stanza and the last stanza of that introduction is this remarkable aim of the God of the psalms, and that is... His aim is our happiness, our blessedness. Psalm 1-1, blessed is the man or woman. Or Psalm 2, verse 14, final stanza, blessed are all who take refuge in him. So it is clear from clear God's aim is for our blessedness, a state of happiness that is not dependent upon our circumstances, that includes our emotions, but not dependent upon our emotions, that is not dependent upon how we feel. 
There are two things that a happy state requires, according to the introduction. First, Psalm 1, the written word of God. Blessed is the man or woman whose delight is in the law of Yahweh. That is our God who has given us a written word. So it's not surprising that several weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 19 about the written word of God. The second thing required for a happy state, according to the introduction, is the living word of God. So Psalm 2, verse 4 to 11 says, Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. That is... Our state of happiness is dependent upon our affections. It's dependent upon our affections and what is affecting our heart. So if we love the right things, or if I should say, if we love the right person, Jesus Christ, we will increasingly grow in our happiness. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so it's not surprising that we are going deep into who this son is that we are taking refuge in. So two weeks ago, uh, we looked at Psalm 22, a psalm that enabled Jesus to joyfully complete the Father's will for himself, uh, to, to victoriously open the door for all to become part of the Father's kingdom by going to the cross. So that Psalm 22, verse 27 says that not only will God's people, the nation of Israel, come into his kingdom, but all nations, uh, Psalm 22, verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to Yahweh, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to Yahweh, and he rules over the nations. And last week we looked at Psalm 23 to discover what kind of kingly rule the Father intended for his chosen. And there we discovered it is a pastoral rule, so that whatever depths of darkness we are going through, he is there. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So Psalms 1 and 2, 19, 22, and 23 are not too much of a surprise. But what about today's psalm? Today's psalm was a latecomer. See, we, we set the schedule for the summer of psalms back in March, and Psalm 24 was not on that schedule. However, the more I reflected on Psalm 22 and 23, I realized that Psalm 24 needed to be included. See, Psalms 20 through 24 are called kingly psalms. If you, re, if you remember, Psalm 22 is that transitional psalm between the focus on the promise that through David there would be a Messiah with an earthly rule, so that's Psalms 20 and 21, and the reality is that there is a heavenly rule, Psalm 23, and we're going to see 24. Psalm 22 reveals how these two kingdoms are really one kingdom. That God himself comes in the line of David and sets up his kingdom through, as we reflect back, the king redeeming his people by dying for them. Now, 
And so Psalm 23 then reveals how that king will be present in their sanctification. But the story of the king really isn't complete until we reflect on Psalm 24, his glorification. So Psalm 24 is the story. Psalm 24 is the story of God in one psalm. And God's story is to be the orientation for the trailblazing of our own story. God's story is to be the orientation of the trailblazing of our own story. And that's what we're all doing. We're all trailblazing. Trailblazing is getting off the beaten path. We, we, all, we all start on a path and we think we know the plan. We think we know where the path is going to lead us. We think we know what our future is going to be. We imagine a future and how we're going to get there. But quickly, we find unexpected obstacles in our way. The path isn't as clear as we expected. We fall off the path. We lose our way. We're all trailblazing. Orienteering is a group of sports that requires navigational skills using a map and a compass to navigate from point to point in diverse uh, and usually unfamiliar terrain while moving at speed. <laughs> the compass provides a constant magnetic north so that as you encounter obstacles that are impenetrable that require you to go around, you still have a fixed point to navigate by. So as we trailblaze in life, we need to have something fixed. Something in front of us that we can navigate by. God. God and his story. If the map is the written word, then the compass is the living word. God's story revolves around this thing, his kingly rule. And what Psalm 24 reveals is that he is creator king, and he is redeemer king, and he is warrior king. Father, we pray, help us as we come to this psalm. We pray that you would take what is large and big and looming in our lives, those things that we think are so great and good that we want to give our lives towards, and we would pray, Father, that you'd help us to see those things in light of you. The Father, as we come here with great and big difficulties and troubles and trials and sin within our life, we pray, Father, that we would see all of these great big things that are in front of us and we would see them in contrast in the real size that they are in light of you. So, Father, as we're all trailblazing through a pathway, we pray, Father, that we would orient ourselves around who you are. So have your way, we pray. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. First of all, Creator King, begin in verse 1. A psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon 
the rivers. Now, these introductory uh, verses affirm the authority of Yahweh over the whole earth, its contents, and its inhabitants. He is the creator, and thus everything belongs to him. Look at how thorough David states it. First of all, he says, the earth is Yahweh's. But not only the earth, but the fullness thereof, or literally everything that is in it, what fills it. Now, there's a profound reality to this fact that the world belongs to God. So this is what we are. We are tenants. Spurgeon, C.H. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, he writes this. He writes, man lives upon the earth and parcels out its soil upon, among its mimic kings and autocrats. But the earth is not man's. He is but a tenant and, uh, but he is a tenant at will. That is God's will. He is a tenant at God's will, a leaseholder upon a most precarious tenure, look at this, liable to instantaneous ejectment. <laughs> That's called death. <laughs> Thus, we're not in the position to do with the world whatever we want to do with it. Humanity is responsible for the physical creation in which we live. To think or act with creation in such a way that abuses it is a, is a matter of indifference to God. It is to join the, the individual in Psalm 14 who says, there is no God. The world belongs to God, namely because he created it. <laughs> he is creator king, a title beyond all disputes. But there's something else to note in verse 2. Not only does the world belong to him, but those who dwell therein. No one belongs to himself or to herself. You do not belong to yourself. Everyone will be held accountable for who or what they claim as their greatest good and thus the orientation of their life. No one escapes facing the creator king as their judge. Matthew recorded this sobering parable. It's a longer one, so I have it up there for you. Matthew 25, beginning in verse 14. Let's, let me read it for you. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He would receive the five talents, went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servants. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also had, had that two talents came forward and saying, Master, you delivered me two talents here. I have made two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. 
Now you can kind of feel where this is going. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed, so I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But this, his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I had scattered no seed. In other words, you know my character. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, there's much we can consider here within the parable, but I, I want us to note here the relationship between the master and the servant. Like our psalm, the servant doesn't own anything. The master is the owner who provides resources according to the abilities of each individual, of, of each servant. And so it's not dependent ultimately upon that individual. They're all unique. And so he's got a pathway for each one of them to be playing out. He's got them uh, to personalities and gifts and talents. We all have unique stories. Or as I've recently heard it said, we are unrepeatable. And with that distinction, there is, with that distinction, unrepeatable. There's nobody like you. There's nobody like your story. Unrepeatable. With that distinction, there is great responsibility. In the case of the third servant, the master called him out for who he truly was. Lazy and wicked. And his destiny was hell. His life was not oriented around his master and his master's story. Our master is the creator king. Verse 2 of our psalm, for he has founded it, the world, upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. In ancient times, the waters, particularly the seas and the oceans, were mysterious and powerful. The rivers were untamable. And so today we know what that's like. Even today, rogue waves wipe out seaside communities. And all the technology and attempts to control rivers, we find them extremely powerful and able to break through our dams and dikes and levees. So verse 2, what he's saying there is that the psalmist's ultimate expression of God's sovereignty is that he's the one who tames the seas. He's the one who controls the rivers for his purposes. So that Psalm 135, verse 6 says this, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. Or Psalm 89, verse 9, You rule the raging of the sea, and when its waves rise, you still them. Expressing the, the control, the sovereignty that God has over his creation, that even the seas which have power, he says, oh, they're nothing compared to me. Which is why the disciples asked the question when in the midst of a dreadful storm on the Sea of Galilee, when Jesus spoke and said, hush, <laughs> to the water and the waves. 
They stilled at that moment, not a slowly down coming down of the waves. No, the wind stopped and the sea was absolutely still. So that they asked this question in fear, who, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Creator King. We must orient our lives around him and his story. Here's an application, one that we're kind of having to wrestle with kind of culturally. Um, I read an article by, uh, by Andrew Walker, a professor of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He recently wrote a book, God and the Transgender Debates. And, and he writes, and I'm using this as an application for something culturally we're all having to kind of wrestle with, but also you can begin to understand how it's going to work down into your own life. Um, and so he writes this, Christianity views reality through the lens of Scripture, which speaks of male and female as being defined by their anatomical and reproductive organization. And then he quotes Genesis 1, 26 and 28. Hormones or surgery cannot override the underlying realities of our genetic structure. If culture tries to define male and female apart from autonomy, uh, sorry, anatomy, and reproductive organization, male and female become fluid, absurd categories. Hence where we are as a culture. The transgender worldview is an active thwarting of one's nature. It is akin to defying limits or swimming upstream against a current. You might try, but but eventually, limitations and the strength of the current are going to sweep you up against your will. Scripture does not allow for a dualism between the body and the self, he continues. This reality of nature leads to one of the most important truths. Actual transgenderism does not exist. Sure, there are people who may have genuine confusion over their gender identity, but the idea that there are persons truly trapped in the wrong body is just false. Scripture does not allow for such a dualism between the body and the self. Flowing downstream from the reality of our nature as male and female is the idea that males and females should flourish in accordance with their being. Flourish is a term that describes the fullness of a thing's being. A thing experiences its fullness of being or excellence when it lives according to what it is and what it is designed to do. The issue of flourishing connects to transgenderism because from a scriptural worldview, we understand that a person can never thrive or flourish apart from living in harmony with God's design in creation. A person might claim to flourish according to how he or she defines flourishing, but flourishing is not a term left to the eye of the beholder. Drug addicts might see their intoxication as a form of flourishing, but this we understand is a cheapened form of flourishing that will over time result not in the fullness of their, of their being, but rather in their undoing. Defined biblically, flourishing understands and welcomes the idea of limitations and boundaries. And I would add, as we've learned today, as defined by the Creator King, 
We are not purely autonomous beings who can create and recreate our nature and our paradigms for flourishing. Flourishing is a pathway we are called to live in line with, not against. And so I think we can understand that whether transgenderism is the issue or any other lesser thing that we might think of or greater thing that we might think of that we might say is our greatest good, if it isn't according to the Creator King in line with Him, we will not flourish. Or maybe we say it this way, if we do live in line with Him, we flourish, or could I say we are blessed. God is the creator king, and this is, in fact, a very good news. God, as owner, is interested in all aspects of our existence. All of life and work is raised to remarkable dignity. As truly ethical, spiritual, purposeful, and escapably meaningful, all life thereby becomes a source of joy and fulfillment. For us because he's our creator king. Not only is he creator king, but he is also the redeemer king. Let's look at verses three through six. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart and who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, Selah. While he is the creator, he isn't distant. When we read God's story, he isn't one who stands over his creation at a distance, but rather he's the one who actually enjoys his creation and enjoys relating particularly with his image bearers. And so I wanted to take you back to Genesis chapter 1. I didn't put it up on the screen because I think you can find Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, so turn in your Bibles there if you have them in front of you. Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to begin at verse 26. It's all going to be very familiar to you. But listen to this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. He wants their happiness. He wants them to flourish. And here's the blessing. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The blessing is that we would be fruitful, namely have families. And we'd fill the earth, live out on earth, working it in such a way as to reflect his glory. He longs to relate to his image bearers. Later in the tragic description of the fall in chapter 3, we find in verse 8, the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day, as if this was a kind of normal everyday occurrence. God walking with his people. He longs 
to be fellowshipping with you. He's walking in the garden and when he finds that they have doubted his goodness, they've questioned his word, they've rebelled against his rule. Part of the tragedy is the loss of closeness, the fall. Yet his desire is to be close to his image bearers, and that remained. So he sovereignly chose a real place, a place made of dirt, where the creator king could meet with his people. Verse 3, the hill of the Lord. And of course, David is speaking of the hill in Jerusalem called Mount Zion. So I'll give you Psalm 132. It's described this way in Psalm 132, verses 13 and 14. For Yahweh has chosen, the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. He says, this is my resting place forever. Here, here I will dwell, for I have desired it. Now, there's nothing really significant uh, about this particular heel from the human eye. What makes it spectacular is the Creator God chose it as a place to meet His image bearers. See, the mountains of Bashan, located northeast of Jerusalem, have much more rugged grandeur, uh, more beautiful peaks, numerous peaks, and yet they're actually envious of this little hill in Jerusalem, Mount Zion. Psalm 68 says, Mountain of Bashan, O many-peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan, why do you look with envy, O many-peaked mountain, at the mount that God desired for his abode? Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. Well, the answer is easy. It's implied because this Mount Zion is the glorious, where the glorious creator king has determined to meet with his people. But notice what is required to there stand in his holy place. Stand expresses a, a, a place of permanence, a place of continuing there. Uh, so, so it's asking the question, who is he that can gaze upon the Holy One? Who is he that can uh, actually abide in the blaze of his glory? Well, it has nothing to do with race, and it has nothing to do with ability or economic status. Well, no, nothing like that. Verse 4, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, which creates a problem. It is one thing to identify practical outward performance. I came to church today. But then to get at the heart, the very core of my being. Second part of verse 4, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. The word for soul, the Hebrew word for soul is nepeth, meaning the self, the essential being. It's who we are at the core of ourselves to, there again, verse 4, to lift up is to offer one's deepest commitment of the whole self to, in this case, what is false, what is empty, 
idols, idols of the heart. To give ourselves up to something or someone other than God, thinking that will be our greatest good. To have clean hearts, hands, to have a pure heart, to never give ourselves over to anything but God, to never swear with intent to deceive. It is these who will, verses 5 and 6, it is these who will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Uh, turn to Psalm 15. Again, if you have your Bibles open, I figured you could probably find that one. Psalm 15, it's a few pages uh, before this. Let me just read it for you. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tents, and who shall dwell on your holy hill? Well, he who walks blamelessly, and does what is right, and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue, and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eye a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurts and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent, he who does these things shall never be moved. So the answer to the question, who shall dwell on your holy hill, according to Psalm 15, is no one. No one shall dwell with him. Or back to our psalm, no one shall stand in his holy place on the footing of the law. No one will be able to do this. For we've all given ourselves over to that which is empty. Romans 8, 2 through 4, gives us some hope. Romans 8, 2 through 4. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, see, what happens with my flesh, what happens with your flesh is that you are given actually a command that God calls you to do, and the first thing you want to do because of your weak flesh is you want to do just the opposite. If it says 55, I'm going to drive 59. If the paint is wet, I'm going to test it out. That's just the way we are in our fallenness wired. So for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. In his flesh, he condemned it. He died for it. He died for our sins. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, we get his righteousness who walk not according to the flesh, but now according to the Spirit. So God the Son, Jesus, in his sinless life, was able, back to Psalm 24, he was the one, verse 3, who was able to, to ascend the hill of the Lord on our behalf. And die in our place. That we might, look again at verse 4, that we might, verse 5, sorry, receive blessing from Yahweh and righteousness from the God 
of his salvation. So that verse 6, we might reorient our lives as a precious mark of receiving the grace of being made right before the Creator King through the Redeemer King. The Redeemer King changes our desire to, verse 6, look there, it changes our desire to seek Him, that is to commune with Him, to hunger and thirst more and more after a clear vision of the face of God. And the remarkable thing is that when we more and more seek His face, it has a purifying thing. To have a clear vision of the face of God is to purge ourselves from all filthiness and to walk with a different orientation. Because as we look to the face of God, we see something much more wonderful, much more beautiful, much more great than all those things that we thought were so beautiful and great that were false. God's story is to be the reorientation for the trailblazing of our own story. He is our Redeemer King. He is the Creator King. He's the Redeemer King. And number three, He's the Warrior King. He's the Warrior King. It is believed that this psalm might have been an antiphonal liturgy of a question and answer performed by at least two parties, perhaps the priests and then the people. Today we would just call this uh, responsive reading. It would go something like this. Now you're going to have to wake up and you're going to have to actually participate, so here we go. It would, it would go something like this. I'm going to read verse 7. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the, kings of glory, that the king of glory may come in. And then you would ask, we're going to do it right now, and that you would ask what? Verse 8. Who is this king of glory? And I'd say, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. You say, who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. So in David's day, this might have been how it worked uh, with the psalm sung when the Ark of Covenant, the, that visible sign of the invisible God's uh, presence of Yahweh, when it was returning from a military victory so that the gates or the doors was a reference to the Jerusalem gates since the temple had not yet been built. Later, when the temple had been built, most likely it was a reference to the gates and doors around the temple mount and the temple itself. So when the command to lift up your heads, O gates, or ancient to doors is made, this is a personification of the inanimate objects that protects the place where God meets. And it's a sign of joy. And it's a sign of hope where there previously was none. See, it's still a sign the same today. When we are defeated or hopeless or feel shame, what do we do? We hang our head. But the warrior king says, have hope and joy in the midst of what troubles your souls. Why? Because, verse 8, he is Yahweh, strong and mighty, Yahweh, mighty in battle. David is using the covenant name, and every worshiper thereafter is using the covenant name down to those of the returned exile. So now, remember, 500 years later, after this has been written, 500 years later, there is no earthly king. But where there is no earthly queen, there is a heavenly covenant-making king, and he is strong and mighty. He's mighty in battle. He has fought 
and will fight for you. Colossians 2, 13 through 15 says this. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, our death. This he, put, he set aside, nailing to the cross. Look at this. He disarmed the ruler's and authorities. He's talking about ultimately the spiritual rulers and authorities, those who could slander you, those who could say, you do deserve death. You deserve God's condemnation. He disarmed them. Oh, because he's mighty, mighty in battle. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. You think you felt shame? He gave them shame, eternal shame by triumphing over them in him, Jesus Christ, on the cross. He fought for you. He fought for you at the cross. This mighty warrior king, he fought for you there so that we are able to do what James calls us to do, resist the devil and he will flee from you, that we no longer look to ourselves, but we look to him as a source of our strength in our battle over sin and brokenness. You're not doing this alone. You are doing it with the warrior king. So we reorient our lives around that king. But I want you to note the repetition there because verses 9 and 10 Verse 10 says, who is this king of glory? And there's a little bit different answer. Verse 10, Yahweh of hosts. He is the king of glory. For those of us who grew up in the church, we regularly sing uh, Martin Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress. Remember that? Mighty Fortress is our God. Verse 2 goes like this on screen. Did we in our own strength confide our striving? Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Who ask, you ask who that may be? Christ Jesus. It is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same and he must win the battle. Lord Sabbath. It's hard to sing. It's hard to say. Lord Sabbath. Looks a lot like Sabbath. As in the day of worship. But that's not its meaning. Sabbath is the Hebrew word for, in verse 10, hosts. Hosts is a reference to the heavenly angelic mighty army of God. He is the warrior king who is the commander of all the powers in heaven. So it is this pinnacle status of commander, warrior king, that is the foundation of our tranquility that drives out fear among our hearts. This is the one who's on your side. He's the one who's going to fight for you. 
So we reorient our attitude and we reorient our response around this ultimate reality of our warrior king when it seems like the world is coming apart all around us. And that may be true of your life. You may feel like the world is coming apart all around you personally. Or we may look out the world generally and say, boy, this seems like the world is falling apart. No, we reorient our understanding. We reorient our attitude to that world, our personal world and the world around us, recognizing that this is the one who is our king. He is our warrior king. He is in control. It is he who is, and his story is that which is a fixed north as we trailblaze our lives. See, the kingly psalms, this psalm celebrates a new order, even while the old order of injustice and chaos and, and infidelity still exists. This kingly psalms, the kingly psalms, this psalm gives reason why God laughs at the rebels in Psalm 2. The kingly psalms, this psalm is a psalm of orientation. It calls us to reorient our lives around God's kingly rule, to view our lives as tenants, as servants, to take our unrepeatable lives and seek God's face and how to live them for their unique part in his overall story. It calls us to orient our hands and our hearts around the grace we have received, to orient, reorient our view of the battle over sin and brokenness, not from our limited weakness, but from his might. Because this warrior king is going to return one day. Revelation chapter 19 then I saw heaven opened, and behold, the Apostle John writes, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him. That's the hosts. They're following him on white horses. Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Orient your lives around him. This is what God is calling us to do today. Father, thank you. <laughs> oh, there's some big things in our lives, Father. We look down and deep into our soul. And there's some big things there. Oh, but they're no match. They're no match to you. Father, we thank you that you are our creator God. You're our creator king, the one who made all things. Our lives are not our own. Our lives are yours. And yet, Father, we do confess that this last week we have not used them appropriately according to that reality. And yet, Father, we thank you that you are also our redeemer, king. And the Christ went, went to the cross for those sins. And that truly, his righteousness is our righteousness. That he disarmed all that which is against us. Sin and death, principalities and authorities. Now, Father, you are a warrior king. As we continue to trailblaze this next week, you're with us. And you'll help us to overcome. We look to you and we thank you. Father, we pray, help us to reorient our lives today. We pray, Father, for anyone here who has yet to rest and trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that they're giving their heart and life the very essence of their being. They're giving it over to lesser things, lesser goods. They think those things are good, Father. I thank you that you've convicted them and shown them that, no, no, you are much better. You are much better. 
and that today is the day of their salvation, that today they say, yes, I want Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, my King, my Creator, my Redeemer, my Warrior. Hear their prayer, Father. Father, as we take the Lord's Supper together, we are thankful that Jesus Christ is the one who took our sins in his body so that as we take that bread, we are reminded again of what he has done for us again on that hill, the only one who could actually ascend the hill. (laughs) He did it. He took our sins and he shed his blood. And so as we take this cup, Father, we're reminded that he shed his blood. A new covenant was made. New promises were given. Spirit of God would live within us. Father, we thank you as we take this supper together. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.